there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. How's it going? Hope the school year is off to a great start for each and every one of you. And for those who've already graduated, woohoo! Hope your jobs are going well too. So for those of you Java junkies who may be wondering what it's like to start a podcast when you've never done one before, like me, well, this episode may help lift the veil on any misperceptions that it's easy or that podcasters don't change their minds and evolve their shows, because I sure have. The reality about T4C is that I've been working on pulling together all the pieces for about seven months before we launched in mid-August. And this is one of the dozen or so episodes that I recorded months and months ago before I'd actually settled on a formula for how I wanted to structure each T4C interview. That's why there isn't a pre-recorded introduction of my guest. So thanks so much for understanding, and I hope it doesn't affect how you're going to feel about my next guest, because she is another kick-ass 20-something, one of the many I'm featuring all this week. So grab your favorite glass of cold brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Hannah Broughton, who has already speed-read her way to the top of the publishing industry. She discovered her love for reading while she was still an undergrad at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, where Hannah eventually pivoted away from her initial interest in politics and toward English, thanks to one incredible English professor she had. She'd always loved bookstores and had actually worked in them during high school and college, all of which led Hannah to decide to take the plunge after she graduated, and she scored an entry-level job in the publishing industry, where today she is an editor at St. Martin's Press. The overarching thing that I am tasked with doing is searching for and acquiring and editing and publishing books. So from start to finish, I oversee the whole publication process. I you know, read and evaluate the submissions that come in to me from agents. A lot of, I mean, like 99% of the time I say no, because there's just not a lot of room for all of the books that have been written. And also a lot of them are simply not good. But then if I do find something that I really like, then I bring it to my editorial board and we talk about it and the merits of it. And I have to have sort of some market research for comparative books that I think this thing, this one project that I like is sort of comparable to. And then if I do get to acquire it, they approve me for a certain amount of money to offer. And then if there's like an auction, I get to win it. That's great. Then I sort of start the editorial part. So I'll edit the book, go back and forth with the author on those kinds of changes. And then eventually it'll go off to production. I oversee the whole production process and also coordinate with marketing, publicity, sales, sort of in the post-editing but pre-publication process of the publishing process. So take me inside uh, an average day for you. I think one of the best things about my job is that there isn't really an average day. It sort of depends on the season and where we are in the process. Right now, we're about to lead up to our launch meetings, which is when a year before the book is published, each editor presents their list for a certain season to the rest of the company. We're about to launch spring-summer 2019 books. So I have my list of books that are going to be published between May and September-ish. May and August of next year planned. So I'll sit down before the company 
and tell them all about it. So right now I'm making sure that all of my sort of information sheets are done. My assistant is helping with that, which is pretty great. Today I was editing a book because it needs to go into production really soon. I also send a lot of emails to authors and people in-house just to sort of like update everybody about where things are in the process. I go to editorial meetings once a week. But like every day is pretty different because it sort of depends on what is being what's coming up next in the queue. So sometimes it's making sure that my edits are done. Sometimes it's I mean, it's just mostly a lot of emails. I think that's what everybody does now with every job is just send a lot of emails. (laughs) So what are you doing in an editorial meeting? Like you've got your authors that you're working with. What is it that you would be? Would it be working with your team? Our editorial meetings are actually when there are acquisition meetings. So that's when if I have a book that I really like and want to acquire, that's where I bring it to the meeting and I say, here's this. This is what I like about it. This is what I think it's worth. And then we sort of, I will have had other people read it. And then, you know, if enough other people like it and think that it's got enough merit, then we'll talk about numbers and then I'll try to offer. I don't bring something up nearly even every week, probably like once a month, maybe. But all of the editors sit in the room and sort of talk about what books they're working on, like or trying to acquire. Is it always a finished book that you're bringing to an editorial meeting? Or is it sometimes just a proposal? Or would it have to be at least a chapter? How does that It totally depends. If it's a work of fiction, like if it's a novel, it's almost always the full novel because you you can't really evaluate a novel if it's not done. But pretty much all works of nonfiction are written on proposal because they require the advance money to go finish the book because a lot of nonfiction writers don't write on spec. So sometimes it's 22 pages of material and sometimes it's a full 350 page book. I'm looking at your resume here and you talk about managing editorial assistance mm-hmm. and delegating tasks. Mm-hmm. What are the editorial assistants doing? So they are providing support to editors. So I was an assistant to an editor, an executive editor for five years when just starting off. And then just in March-ish, I got my own assistant, which is truly life-changing. I cannot even tell you. So yeah, so I was an assistant for five years on my own for one year with no help, just sort of doing my own thing. And now my list is grown to a level that they decided that I could use an assistant and absolutely I could. So she's doing things for me like making sure all the paperwork is happening. So when we're dealing with contracts, she's the one who makes sure that the agent gets them. And then when it's signed, she sort of traffics it to make sure all of the payments go out and to royalties and whatever. She helps me read my submissions that come in and she responds to them. I also have such a big editing pile that I'm having her do the first edit on a lot of my books, which is amazing. And hopefully it's nice for her to sort of actually get, you know, sink her teeth into something more than just paperwork. Yeah. In the espresso shots, you mentioned that you are juggling anywhere between 25 and 30 books over the course yeah. of a year. And it's actually probably more than that because I have I actually I've never counted it at one time how many I'm actually working on at one time or, or should be working on at one time. Because I have the books that I'm publishing this year that I'm also working on books I'm publishing next year. So the ones that I'm working on this year, they're all done and edited and in production, but I'm still corresponding with those authors about, you know, their tour and the reviews that are coming in and that kind of post, 
either just pre or just post publication stuff. But then I'm also working on helping authors. I have one author whose book probably won't come out until fall 2019, but she's just turned in sort of a rough draft. And so I have to read it, give her some edits without sort of going deep because she's going to need a lot of revisions. And then I have other authors who've actually passed in their their full manuscript and, and I'm editing those books too. So it's just sort of seeing what's on fire the most and being like, okay, I'll do this next. What makes a good editor? That's a good question. I think to me, the most successful editor is just being a really good reader. My job is to read somebody's book and to respond as their first reader. You know, I edit a lot of mysteries, which means they have to be really tightly plotted and they have to make sense. You know, there's one book that I just edited that I don't think the ending really had its full effect. So my job will be to say, hey, listen, I see what you're doing here, but I think actually it would be great to make this part a little bit more dramatic or whatever. So I'm just coming at any book I edit as as a reader who cares about the book and wants to make it better. It's my job is not to impose any sort of, you have to do this or this is terrible and you need to rewrite this whole thing. Like I'm the captain of the ship all the way through. Yeah, it sounds like a captain of a ship or a really good Yeah, coach. yeah. It's sort of like a combination of the two because you have to be a cheerleader for this author. Like I think so many people forget about how writers sit alone in a room for most of their days when they're writing. And then they're like, oh, well, everything I wrote is terrible and you're going to hate it and it's just awful. <laughs> so sometimes you have to be like, okay, I read it. It's not terrible. You did a good job. And here's how we're going to make it better. So it's sort of like a cheerleader, a coach, all of those things in one. I think that's the best combo. Do great editors also make for great writers? No, not necessarily. No. So I have no desire to be a writer. I have no stories to tell. I don't like in a book. I think there are some editors who are writers, but I think most editors who want to be writers end up really miserable because they spend all of their time working on other people's books when they wish that they could be working on their own. I don't think that the two are related necessarily. I think that probably if you read a lot, then you're going to be a good writer and editors do read a lot. What is it that you're looking at? You're looking at the organization of the book. Is that like the big thing? And then trying to put yourself in the shoes of future of potential readers to say, are there stories here that I would find interesting? Yeah. I'm mostly editing for content and style. So if it's nonfiction, a lot of times I'll be like, okay, I think you have more of a story to tell here, but you need to expand it or you know, you're trying to fit in too much information in this spot, like you need to take a breath, slow down, write it all out. And if it's fiction, sometimes I'm like, this plot point doesn't make sense. Or this character is saying or doing something that I don't believe they'd actually do. It just sort of depends. It depends on what it is. It's sort of a new process with every book. So with the nonfiction book that I've bought on proposal, I'm usually reading the chapters, a couple chapters, every couple chapters as they come in. With this Queer Eye book, there will be a co-writer. I'll be sort of reading as it's written and saying, okay, this is a good story. Add more here. I don't want you focusing on this topic. I think you should go focus on that topic. It'll be like a collaboration, I think. That has to be really hard, I would think, getting chapters in kind of in installments and then trying to get your head back in the space of where those earlier chapters yeah, were. Yeah, it is. It works sometimes. So if I'm editing more on a sort of line by line basis, it's not as hard, but definitely if I'm, I can't, if somebody just sends me one chapter at a time, I have a lot of trouble working on it because I'm like, I can't see the forest for the trees. Like I can only see this one tiny little slice. So usually if they're sending me sort of one or two chapters at a time, I'll read them 
can send back a little bit of feedback, but then I won't edit the whole thing until I have the actual full manuscript or, or a big chunk of the manuscript so that I can actually get into it. I'm also thinking how challenging it would be and the pressure that you would be under with these acquisitions because, I mean, there are so mm-hmm. many books that are out there, not just coming through sort of the bricks and mortar publishing houses, but also the self-publishing and other publishing houses that are now online and, and whatnot. How do you stay on top of all of the material that's out there to know that, in fact, your book will break through the I mean, noise? you kind of can't stay on top of it all. There's so There's so much noise out there and there's less and less space for books to be featured and there's not as many bookstores and shelves to showcase books on. People are shopping online for everything nowadays. It's hard. It's really hard. And it's sort of an ever-evolving process. I think the only thing that you can do is to know that you have a really good book and that you worked hard on it and made it the best book it can be. And then you trust your publicity people and you cross your fingers that you get some good placement. I mean, a lot of the publishing industry is sort of luck. If we knew how to make a guaranteed bestseller every time, we would be a lot richer than we are. (laughs) It's sort of a little bit of magic. You know, sometimes Oprah will pick a book as her book club choice and you'll have no idea that that's the one that she was going to pick. And then you've like, you know, printed a gajillion dollars. Like our sister company, Holt, published Fire and Fury. And they expected to sell a bunch of copies of it. But then when the president of the United States sends a cease and desist letter to us and then tweets about it, like we couldn't print the books fast enough. But like, that's not something that we could ever have anticipated. And like, on the other side, you know, sometimes you'll have a wonderful book that is just so worthy and that everybody loves, and then it just doesn't sell. It's unfortunately sort of just how it goes. So I want to flash back to uh, when Mm -hmm. you were at Wellesley and you graduated in 2011 with a BA Mm -hmm. in English and you minored in psychology. Did you know that you wanted to get into publishing? I didn't know immediately. So I, in high school, had gotten really into politics and was like, I'm going to go into politics. I'm going to be a poli-sci major. In college, I thought I would go to a different college. I never in a million years thought I would go to Wellesley. But then I got in and I did my visit and sort of the rest was history. But then uh, at the my second semester, my first year, I took this amazing English class with this amazing professor. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, not I need to be an English major. Like, that was stupid. Obviously, this is what I'm going to do. And then from there, he had gotten a position as one of the poetry editors of the Paris Review. And he was looking for somebody to just sort of like assist him with his, you know, administrative whatever. So I got to do that. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I think I do want to work in the publishing industry. So what was it that made you feel this was the right fit? And I see that you actually started working at the Paris Review as an intern. Yeah. So I spent the summer there just being one of the interns reading extraordinarily bad submissions. Just the amount of bad short stories out there is astonishing. Through that, I discovered that it's not really the kind of writing or, or books that I wanted to do. I'm not really, I don't, my, my tastes aren't that literary. I like sort of big commercial books better than, you know, really literary short stories. And I like books that sell. I like publishing at the end of the day is a business. We're not doing this out of the goodness of our hearts. We're doing it to make money and to sell books. So I like publishing books that are going to sell. So you are officially one of the people, one of the few people who is actually 
in a profession in which your major is right yeah, in line. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And also, I think you do probably have to have a college degree to go into this industry just because you need to be a good writer and a good reader. If you if you were an art major or art history major or just a history major or comparative studies major, all of those things would say to a prospective employer that you have spent time critically reading, being able to put your thoughts out well and sort of have that facility for all of the different kinds of communication that you have to do in this in this job. I see that you also did this Columbia publishing course in the summer after you yeah. graduated. Yeah. Can you tell us about that and whether it's something that you would recommend for folks who are aspiring to yeah, get it? Yeah, I would definitely... I mean, I probably didn't have to do it because I'd had two internships the summer before. But one of my professors had sort of had told me about the Columbia Publishing course and how she had at least one or two students go on to get jobs in publishing from it. It's expensive. I think they might have some scholarships, but it's totally invaluable for getting your foot in the door. It's not impossible to get a job through sort of informational interviews and networking. But this was a way for me to get a nice foundation in the whole publishing industry. And then I found my job, this job that I have right now through that. So they have the connections to the people who are posting the jobs. The crazy thing about publishing is that when there's a job opening, it's usually open and closed in like two to four weeks. So by the time you see a posting online, it's almost certainly not actually available anymore. So the way that I found my job was because my former boss went to the director of the Columbia Publishing Course and said, I'm looking for a new assistant. They collected resumes from the hundred of us who were interested. I don't know how many people sent in their resume. And then they sent our resumes directly to him. So it sort of like cuts out the middleman. There's no like, did my application get through the internet to the people who need it? So this is your former yeah. boss? At yeah, this was like the editor that I was assisting. Got it. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really confusing, at least I found it to be this case when I moved from journalism into the professions that followed are titles, because I think every industry's titles mm -hmm. are different. Can you walk us through, Hannah, the difference between an editorial assistant, an assistant editor, an associate editor, an editor on up? Editorial assistant, that's where you'll start off. That's where the bulk of your job is just assisting another editor. So doing pretty much 100% of their work and supporting them. I was promoted to assistant editor after like two, a little more than two years. In publishing, the, the titles sort of matter, but they oftentimes don't actually come with that much of a job chain. So assistant editor means that you're doing a little bit more of your own work, you know, that you're going out and looking for your own titles. And then I was just promoted to associate editor a year after I'd been promoted to assistant because I sort of acquired a stable of my own writers. And they, I guess, wanted to recognize that. But I was still assisting another person. So it's sort of just taking on more and more work until you're like, Hello, excuse me, I, I can't do this anymore. And that's when they took me off of my former boss's desk. And they're like, Okay, you're free. I was, uh, I was an associate editor for two years. Yeah, two years. And then after two years as an associate, I was taken off of my boss's desk. And then just this past January, I was promoted to editor. That's like the big promotion. That means that you're like a full editor who's expected to do a full list of books. I mean, I'd already been doing that when I was an associate. So I guess they were like, okay, you're officially a full editor now. 
I get to work with really cool people. As an editor, this job title specifically, I mean, I got I got this assistant a couple months ago. So now I can actually do all parts of my job without being like, it's never going to get done. What am I going to do? I need to like never talk to anybody again so that I can get all this work done. I have I have help, which is wonderful. And actually, I get the time to go out and pursue the projects that are really exciting to me um, without having to feel guilty about how much I haven't done yet. I get to work with books every day. I don't get to read books at my desk all the time, but I get to... I have friends in other at other publishing houses who get to order me books for a discount and I get to get my books from my company for free. So it's a nice perk. That yeah. is a big perk for sure. So what's the least favorite part of being an editor? I think the workload, it's a lot. I think so we're... Our company is changing the way we're doing things a little bit. So we're going to try not to publish quite as many books. In the past, the St. Martin's model was to sort of publish as much as you could, see what happened. And because there's just so much less space to put these books, both on the screen, you know, it's hard to get Amazon to feature your book in a place where people will discover it. And also it's hard to, you know, there just aren't as many bookstores as there used to be. So we're going to not publish quite as many books, which is great, but that's going to take a long time to actually get to. So I think just the volume of work is probably like the hardest part of my job. I usually am in at like 9.30 and then I leave at 6-ish. But then I work on the weekends. If I'm home for a weekend, like this weekend I'm home, I'm going to have to work for a good chunk of the day on Saturday and a good chunk of the day on Sunday. What would you say your particular superpower is and Um, why? I'm pretty organized. I unless I'm totally overwhelmed, I'm pretty good at prioritizing. And then I also really I think just in terms of me as a person, but also how it relates to my job well, I think I'm good at relating to people. Authors really do need a lot of empathy so that you know that they've done this thing and that you see them and, and you acknowledge the hard work that they've done. And I think I'm particularly good at sort of trying to see things from their perspective and try to see what what they were trying to do. What skills do you wish you had but don't? I'm not a very good networker. I do not really relish going to those sort of industry parties where there are lots of people for you to meet and, and hobnob with. It's just not how I've ever really shown. As a person, I'm much better with one-on-one, but I think that's because I'm an introvert. So that's just not my natural state of being. I should be working on my networking skills, but I'm I don't. I'll tell you what, some of the some of the interviews I've done recently heard some great advice from others about if you're not naturally an extrovert and don't like networking to partner yeah, with someone that's a good who idea. is. So maybe if it's your assistant or a colleague who is the extrovert to go with them yeah. to those events. And that kind of yeah. forces you out of your comfort zone. That like this whole industry is just a bunch of introverts. We're all like, I just like reading. <laughs> so, you know, you go to these parties and they're like, oh, hi. And you're like, oh, hi. And then you're like, okay, bye. You know, because we're all like, I don't really want to be here. Okay, give me another champagne, please. Yeah. But that's yeah. a good data point. That is a good data point that like, if you are somebody who isn't an extrovert, this could be a good career path for you. And if you are an extrovert, but you're interested in publishing, you should definitely be a publicist because they have to talk to people all day. If you could share with the Time for Coffee listeners about any time, and I recognize that your career thus far has not been very long. You've obviously accomplished a lot, but if you've had a low point or a 
a particular challenge when you felt you really had to dig deep to find the courage, the stamina to plow ahead? So the last couple of years have been particularly hard because I think for people in their mid to late 20s, I was just saying this to somebody the other day. She's another, she's an assistant who I really like. She's just really nice. And she works on my floor and she's, you know, really smart and, and a hard worker. But she was sort of like, what should I be doing? I don't know. And I was like, well, I know exactly how you feel because your mid twenties or when you're like, okay, I've been out of college for a long enough time that I'm not just sort of a recent graduate making my way. And I'm not in my thirties and I don't have any money and I'm never going to be able to save for a house and like, how will I ever even get married or have a baby on this tiny little salary? So I think for me, the hardest, the first couple of years in publishing were great because, you know, I'm, I'm working on books, with people I really like, and it's wonderful. And then going out onto my own and having to do my own thing is scary, but also exciting. But I think what's the hardest parts were just trying to sort of trust my own enthusiasm and confidence in, in books that I wanted to buy and acquire. And you have to sort of fight for your own support. It also, my job is to acquire books, but also I've been doing this now for seven years, which is not a short amount of time. It's not like, you know, I'm only 29. So it's not like I've had a lot of years to be doing this, but like I've done it for long enough that I'm not totally clueless. But a lot of people at my company have been at the company for like 30 or 40 years. So in comparison, I think sometimes the younger editors are seen as total babies that just aren't really taken as seriously sometimes. And it's hard to sort of remind yourself that that's not insurmountable. Like being successful in this industry is a lot of just sort of maintaining your own confidence in yourself. It's really easy. I don't really know the one solution. It goes in such waves with this industry. You'll have, you know, six months where you get nothing interesting submitted to you and you're like, there are no good books out there. They've all been written. We're never going to find anything. And then one day you'll get something in your inbox where you're like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. I'm so excited about this. And then it's my job to go out and, and talk to my other colleagues. Like when I was acquiring Tan France's book, I was like, this is the best thing ever. He's so wonderful. I'm deeply passionate about publishing, you know, stories from other perspectives. And he's a British Pakistani gay Muslim guy. Like, so I was able to be like, no, this is something that I really care about. And then sort of remembering the things that I care about self bolstered me. I don't know how to say that even just sort of remembering what you care about. Not every book I love, I've been able to acquire. Like there have been tons of books where I'm like, I love this book. I want to work on it. And either I've been outbid by another company or my own bosses have been like, it's not good enough. Or we don't like it for these reasons. Or we value it, but not enough to be able to buy it. So it's really easy to take it personally because every time you bring up a book that you love, you're sort of like putting your own... You're putting a stake in this thing that has a little bit of your own self-worth wrapped up in it. We're the smallest of the big five. So we have not a huge percent of market share, like Penguin Random House has like 50% market share. So they just they get a lot for that. I love it because when I so I interned at Bloomsbury the summer before my senior year and liked it a lot. But I also sort of discovered that I wanted to be able to offer big money on books, so that I could publish big books. And a lot of the smaller presses just don't have that kind of a budget. So I really wanted to work at one of the big five. Back then it was big six because that was before Penguin and Random House had merged. You just like you have a bigger 
Salesforce, you have more, you know, sort of money in the bank to be able to say, okay, here's a lot of money for a book that I really am passionate about. You have more money to spend on marketing and publicity. So I like it. It's sort of funny because people say that the publishing industry is dying, but they've been saying that for literally a hundred years. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not a shrinking industry either. Like, you know, we grow small percentage points most years. So it's pretty much flat. So it's the space is shrinking. And I think all industries are probably tightening a little bit just because technology exists. Like in 30 years ago, an editor would have three assistants because you couldn't just put a manuscript in the copy machine and have it go like because you would have to copy every single page or before there were even copy machines, like you had to use typewriters. Now we have this sort of technology that makes it not as administratively labor intensive. I don't think that'll ever change. I think people still go to libraries. Apparently millennials are some of the biggest users of libraries in this country. So if someone is interested now in getting into publishing, they don't need to worry that the industry won't be around. No, definitely not. Because five years. Because books have to get published some way. I think the media loves to report on indie publishing and online self-publishing. And that is a totally fine way to do it if that's how you want to. But somebody still has to edit the book, copy edit the book to make sure there are no errors because you can go on Amazon and look at some of those self-published books. Some of the reviews are like, I couldn't read this. There were so many typos. So you still have to have somebody copy edit the book. You have to have somebody do the marketing find the placement for the book, get the books out into the marketplace. Like that's what my company does. That's what a publishing company does. So yes, you can put your book up for sale on Amazon and hope that people find it and down price it so that it's cheap. But the price of a regularly published book is not really the paper. It's all of the other labor that goes into it. So Hannah, you had mentioned in the espresso shots about one of the surprising things about your industry being that you're <laughs> not well compensated. And you add to that the the long weeks that you put in to the job to, to make sure that you're doing what is expected of you and probably going above and beyond as well. One of the really important parts of the Time for Coffee brand is looking at self-care and health and wellness. Is there anything that you could share with our listeners about how you manage your stress? Are there things that you do to try to bring some balance into yes, your I'm life? I'm a big fan of self-care. And I encourage everybody in my life to do that as well, because I think you're just a miserable, terrible, sad person if you work all the time. Don't spend any time on doing things that make you happy. Unless I don't think anybody is happy doing work all the time. I stand by that. I was... A pretty big procrastinator in high school and college, and I unfortunately am still a little bit of a procrastinator, which is fine. That's just how it is, and I get things done eventually. But I, you know, I have friends who will work at the office during the day and then come home and work late into the night. And I guess I could do that, but I also like to do other things too. Like I see a lot of theater and I like to catch up on my TV shows and snuggle my cat and hang out with my friends. And I, I think just giving myself the permission to live my life and not just think about work 100% of the time is something people should do. Yeah. Good for you. I don't make overtime anymore, which is fine. But you know, I'm still not making heaps of money and I will put in tons of work for my job, but I also care about my own well-being. Are there any final words of advice that you or comfort that you would want to give those 
young people who haven't gotten a break or haven't even tried yet because they're still in school. It's a small world. So the more people you are able to meet and sort of make a connection with, the more likely it is that somebody will remember you and be able to send your resume on if there's a job opening. I think everything does work out eventually. I had it pretty easy, but my roommate actually spent quite a few months waiting for a job that she really wanted. She got an offer for one place or maybe didn't even apply. I don't remember. She like applied to a bunch of places and got fairly far in the process and then either didn't get something or it wasn't right. And so she was jobless for a while, but it really, really all worked out. And I think it's very easy when you're 18 to 22 to be like, I have to have everything planned. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to do these things. And it's going to like, I don't know what will happen if it doesn't work out. But like it does, you'll get a job somewhere doing something. And if that's not what you want to do, you don't have to do that for the rest of your life. Like my roommate got a job in marketing, which is totally not what she thought she wanted to do. She spent like three years doing that almost, and then decided that that wasn't what she wanted to do. And then she transitioned into editorial at a different company and sort of took, it was like a little bit of a pay cut and definitely a job title cut. But like now she's super happy doing exactly what she wants to do. And I don't think she ever would have thought that she would spend three years in marketing, but it actually really helped her have a good overview of what the industry is. So there are a lot more opportunities, I think, than you'll be told that there are. So when we, I think the first day of the Columbia Publishing course, the director said, okay, raise your hand if you want to go into editorial. And almost everybody raised their hands. And she was like, yeah, by the end of this course, like not even half of you will want to go into editorial because you sometimes don't know that there are other positions that are available. And there are like other, you know, jobs that you could take that are suited to your strengths that maybe aren't exactly what you thought that you were going to do. Like I never thought that I would work for an editor who worked on mostly mysteries that never occurred to me. But then when I saw the job description and like the job opening, I was like, oh, yeah, I could try out for that. That's that's a thing I would like to do. That's what the rest of history. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.